morning. Thank you very much, Lincoln and Christopher, for continuing to prepare our hearts for God's Word. Uh, we have some ushers in the back, or we can have some ushers in the back. Maybe you can help us out, uh, James and others. Um, if you need a Bible to follow along with this morning, we like to study God's Word, the Bible here. You may have forgot yours at home or in the car, and um, we'd love to have you follow along. We're going to be taking a one-week break from the Gospel of John and looking at Philippians chapter 2, I believe for good reason this morning. So if you need a Bible to follow along with, just slip up your hand, or maybe the person that brought you or invited you could slip up their hand if you need a Bible to follow along. Our ushers will find you, and uh, if not, we'll continue on. Philippians chapter 2, one right here, up front here. Anyone else? Philippians chapter 2, familiar text to many of you. Uh, but I would like to do this uh, uh, passage, to re-examine this passage. Uh, oh, I think some uh, 12 or 13 years ago, uh, we preached through the book of Philippians here in a Sunday morning. It's been since then that we've taken an exhaustive look at any one particular part. But for those of you who are guests, we... We seek to go through one book of the Bible at a time here in our morning services together. Um, and sometimes we'll take a break. Right now we're going through the book of John. But sometimes we'll take a one or two week break uh, as God leads our hearts for different reasons. And uh, what I saw this week, what I had the opportunity to see, the glimpses uh, that God allowed me to see of those participating in Grace Bible Day Camp, uh, kept bringing this particular text to mind all week long. Uh, every single time I saw them participating in the gospel together, trying to give the good news of Jesus to children and their parents, I was reminded of this text. And uh, this text would not leave me alone all week long, beginning Monday from the first glimpse I had at uh, our dear friends in the room participating in the gospel but for those of you who were not able to do so you prayed I know you did everyone in this room participated uh, or partners in the gospel this week and uh, I just want to just refresh our hearts um, by saying thank you first of all uh, as your pastor for all of the efforts that you uh, were involved with this week for your sacrifice of your time and uh I appreciate your applause earlier. Uh, those are well-deserved. Uh, public thank you again from this pulpit is deserved as well. And um, So we're going to look at just verses 1 to 4. And uh, let's read it together, then we'll back up. And uh, we'll understand some things from a broader picture. And then come back to grant-specific, unique time to these four verses. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul is really discussing here the necessity of relationships in Christ being maintained so a robust gospel effort can be achieved by any local church. This robust gospel effort is first individual, we all know that. We all have been called to be fishers of men. Jesus told his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That was a prophecy that certainly was fulfilled in their lives. And God has called us to be disciples who make disciples, people who not only were reached by someone with the good news of Christ, but God has called us to reach someone else with the good news of Christ. And the New Testament is replete. It is full of the understanding that any church's individual or collective gospel outreach is only as powerful as its relationships are right and secure inside the local church. 
What we saw this week together as a church family was a robust gospel outreach because those participating in Grace Bible Day Camp love to maintenance the relationships they have with one another in Christ Jesus. I would just like to take a 50,000 foot view here of the prison epistles in relationship to what I just said. Letters Paul wrote from prison. Each one of the letters, there's four that Paul wrote from prison, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, all four underpin the reality that there must be strong relationships within the church so the church can have an effectual gospel ministry to those outside the church that need Christ. We'll look at that here for sure uh, as we land in Philippians 2, 1 to 4. But if you go over with me to the book of Ephesians, back to your left a little bit, relationships in the church of Ephesus had been threatened because there were people of different nationalities and religious backgrounds who had come together and come to known Christ and now were worshiping in one church in Christ. And those relationships that were unified in Christ were threatened to be divided again over former religious background and cultural backgrounds. Paul addresses that. The people respond well because they know the Lord. And what's Paul's conclusion in Ephesians chapter 6? In the ending of this practical portion of the book as those relationship issues are addressed and they they are mended The ultimate goal is what? With all prayer, verse 18, chapter 6, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, he's in prison, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You go over with me to Colossians, a few pages to your right in the fourth chapter. Though Paul is literally chained up in prison, some say house arrest, he wants the relationship with himself in this church to be right, these churches to be right, but their relationships inside the church to be right. Because he anticipates always an advancement of the gospel, whether he's in change or whether he's not. This is an anticipation of the ultimate purpose of the church, period. In Colossians, if you go back to the doctrinal portion of this book and think how each member needed to guard themselves against slipping back again in religious ceremony. In chapter 2, and as Paul addresses those things, And in addressing those things religiously, functionally, corporately in the local church and relationships are strengthened and maintained, there's an ultimate end to why that needs to, those relationships need to be protected and guarded and developed. Because in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2, he says, devote yourselves in prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well that God would open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear the way I ought to speak. And then for you, Colossian believers, for you believers at Grace Church of Mentor, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards those who don't know Jesus. Outsiders are the, is the term Paul uses here for those who need Jesus in our community. Making the most of the opportunity, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You go over to the book of Philemon, the smallest letter in the New Testament. We know that there was a relationship there that needed to be restored. Do you remember? And that was a former employee of Philemon. He was a house employee, a house servant, if you will. And Onesimus had robbed Philemon blind. Remember the church's meeting in Philemon's house. 
and, and Philemon robbed Onesimus and ran. Well, interestingly enough, while Paul's in prison, he gets to know Onesimus and build a redemptive relationship with him. And he has the opportunity to see Onesimus come to know Christ as his savior. And what does he do? He wants to send him back to the church that's meeting in Philemon's home so that relationship can be restored. Onesimus has received forgiveness of the Lord in Christ. And now that church needs to forgive him as he's been forgiven. And Paul asks that little church that's been robbed blind to receive Onesimus back as if they were receiving the Apostle Paul himself. The relationships need to be maintenanced. Regardless of the degree of the conflict that's divided in the past, in Christ they're to be maintenanced because there's a greater purpose of the church. He says in verse 10 of Philemon, I appeal to you. This is really a, a picture of a beggar holding out a cup. You hear the coins jiggling in that cup. I'm begging of you for my child, Onesimus. And my child is a term that Paul used for Timothy and Titus, specifically people that he had an opportunity to lead to Christ, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you because he had robbed you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person that is sending my very heart, who, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. For the gospel's sake. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while. That's kind of a hard pill to swallow. Maybe God allowed this robbery the thievery on Onesimus's part to happen for the salvation of his own soul. Go figure. That you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in in Christ, both as a friend and as a fellow worshiper and servant of Christ. Now, if we go back to the book of Philippians, we'll see again the importance of maintenancing relationships here for the advancement of the gospel. I believe it's very clearly here within the context of this particular chapter. So Paul, even from prison, is very interested in coming alongside to offer an assist with the relationships in these churches for eternal purpose. He knows that there must be tight bonds within so there can be robust gospel growth without. And this is what I saw all week with the glimpses I had of Grace Bible Day Camp. Friends, this is a large effort from many spirit-filled people. For each of the participants, this GBDC is additional gospel work. Each person is already serving at GCM and they're out there in the community on their own building redemptive relationships and discipling and being disciple. But the workers of Grace Bible Day Camp are gospel-saturated people because they work hard at maintaining solid relationships with the Lord and with one another so coming to a week like they had this week, your opportunity not to be here but to pray for it, we, we join together, we band together as partners in this gospel effort because your relationships are strong. And then together, as one, we can reach more. We can reach more. The Spirit of God does glorious, redemptive, work when God's people get along. Jesus is always building his church both here and abroad, but there are times 
when either a person or a church can grieve the Spirit of God where he doesn't move as he would like to in and among his people for redemptive purposes. These ministers of the gospel last week worked hard at getting along. And believe you me, if you've ever been a part of Grace Bible Day Camp or been part of what used to be called vacation Bible school in the past, everyone knows how ridiculously easy it is to minister to little kids seven hours a day for five days straight. There's never going to be a difference of opinion of how games should be run. There's never going to be a difference of opinion of how snacks should be served. There's never going to be a difference of opinion of how crafts should be made. There's never going to be a, different, a, a, a difference of opinion of why so-and-so taught too long and took away from the kid's snack or game time. There's never going to be a difference of opinion of anything among really good people. Everything goes seamlessly all week long to perfection. Right? Yeah. So what does everyone in that, in that context need to do in relationship to this text? We're going to find out. We're going to find out because there's a purpose and an eternal rationale to why they do what they do. Why they strengthen the relationships even through the midst of difficulty. So whether publicly ministering as Brandon prayed, ministering behind the scenes, and we know that there's never any disagreement over the way something's administrated behind the scenes. They happen. But spirit-filled people strive to maintenance their relationships with one another because they're all there for something much bigger than themselves. Philippians 2, 1 to 4 that we've already read details in one sentence. The function and blessed realities of the relationships among people who are gospel-driven. To step back just a bit, we should write in our Bibles something a little bit of the context here. We have Paul's personal example of striving for gospel purposes in chapter 1, and you can detail those in specific in verses 21 to 26. But on the heels of 2, 1 to 4 is 5 to 11 of chapter 2, and we have the most glorious example of gospel purpose in the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the man who authored the majority of the New Testament and Jesus himself bookend their gospel purpose and sandwiched right in between is the reality of what the Philippian people enjoyed as partners in the gospel with Paul as he mentioned in chapter 1 and verse 5. There's one main verb in this sentence and it's verse 2. Make my joy complete. Paul is saying there's really nothing that matures the understanding of joy in my life and there's nothing that makes me happier than to know God's people get along because they have lost souls in view. Before and after this main verb of verse 2, we'll find our first and third points. The first thing that Paul wants us to understand on the way to this first and main verb is the Philippians gospel recollection. We're going to look at a gospel recollection. We're going to consider our gospel orientation and then thirdly, our gospel obligation. Recollection, orientation, and obligation this morning. On the way to this first main verb, the Apostle Paul, by use of the grammar here, is asking each Philippian saint 
to remember back to the time they were born again. There's a, there's a number of things that occurred supernaturally, subjectively and objectively, if you will, actively and passively in their hearts the moment they were saved. And what he's saying here is if this is to be an exercise of the body strengthening itself for gospel purpose, then it's an exercise well worth doing. Part of maintaining relationships is everyone in the room drawing the circle around their own hearts and lives, making sure they're remembering these things about their conversion experience. So he takes a little bit of a deep dive here in life philosophy, if you will, of why we're existing the way we're existing together. And he wants us to remember a few things. Therefore, based on this gospel partnership, based on how the gospel is advancing in chapter one, by the way, the word gospel here is mentioned more in these four chapters, more in this letter than in any other book of the New Testament. It's mentioned eight times. Five of those eight times are in the first chapter. So Paul's saying, based on how we're partners in the gospel, based on how you've matured because you've come to know Christ, based on how it's advancing in your area, in your region, and based on how God has allowed me, 21 to 26, to advance it through difficulty and hardship, therefore, you continue to advance the gospel by you individually remembering what God in Christ, by the Spirit, did the moment you were born again. Anyone who's going to endure the maintenance of relationships with others in the local church will always need to remind themselves of the miraculous work God has done for them in their hearts, first and always first. First and always first. What was Paul's... Uh, it's amazing for us to, to hear this out of his lips and, and see this written of himself. Paul considered himself to be the chiefest of sinners, right? The chiefest of sinners now saved. When you walk into a room with a group of spirit-filled people, everyone does these recollective things but they're doing them because they're spirit-filled people. Everyone walks into a room, whether we're worshiping or whether we're going out and reaching together, we do this with this humble mindset. We are, you are, I am the chiefest of sinners. I'm the worst guy, worst gal in the room, but Jesus saved me. Anyone who does not maintenance that mindset will find something to pick at in somebody else's life. But this band of brothers and sisters this last week had no space in their minds or their hearts to pick at anyone because they were so filled with the understanding of being amazed that God would save them, that together they could go and reach in unity those who need Jesus. So Paul asked them to remember four things here. Since there is an encouragement in Christ. You see that there? Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and every time you see the word if, if here, it's appropriate for us, Grammarians tell us to put the word since because Paul's asking them to look back to their conversion experience. So he's asking them to objectively consider the realities of what the gospel did to bring change to their life. What Jesus did to bring change to their lives. Since there was and continues to be an encouragement in Christ. What's he talking about here? What are we to remember? The moment of our salvation, Christ came alongside. That's what the word encouragement means here. He called us alongside of himself. 
We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And God in that moment gave you the authority to be called his child. Since this happened, we're to be encouraged. The prepositional phrase here, in Christ, is, makes all the difference, doesn't it? Throughout all the New Testament writings where it's used. All of this was done in him. There's spiritual freedom there. There's divine security there. There's personal peace and joy there when Jesus comes alongside. So since you've been made free in Jesus, since you've been divinely secured in Jesus, and since you've known his peace and his joy, hmm, certainly working together for eternal purpose is valuable, of the greatest value to the Christian existence. When Christ came alongside at your conversion, he came to stay. Colossians chapter 3 says, you are hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The word hidden there in Colossians 3 means to, to made to be kept secret. When the spiritual foes of God cast their glance upon you to threaten your walk or to threaten your unity with another believer, they see the conquering king. There's great comfort there. And more than that, more than that, when God casts his gaze upon you, you have been hidden really behind Christ. He sees his son. There's great consolation there. He goes on to say, if there's any consolation of love, Christ's love brings an unconditional reality with it, doesn't it? And that settles our heart, as love brings a sacrificial element with it, doesn't it? Christ's love comforts our hearts because we know his sacrificial love was love enough for the whole of our sin. We sing that wonderful hymn from time to time, O love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. There's tremendous consolation. This is a, this is a soul-filled, settled reality that we are secure. Because of Christ's unconditional, sacrificial love that we've come to know. He goes on to say, if there's or since there is any fellowship of the Spirit, since there is any fellowship of the Spirit, three times the word fellowship is used in this letter in strategic places. Chapter 1 and verse 5 here and in chapter 3 and verse 10 there's fellowship in the gospel fellowship in the spirit and then fellowship of the sufferings of Christ we don't have time now you can go back and listen to the series on Philippians we did years ago or study it out on your own you probably already have to see the importance of the strategic placement of that word fellowship within the context of this whole book but fellowship as it's used and understood in the New Testament reaches deep into the combined Christian existence. It describes the fullness of gospel work God's people endure together. Much deeper than merely getting together to play board games and enjoy a pizza or a ball game, and, and all that's good. Koinonia, the Greek word here, fellowship, describes the church, communities, guttural, combined sacrifice in worship and in gospel advancement the agonizing together in prayer for lost people the enduring of conflict together that comes due to one salvation testimony the striving together in the understanding and application of the word of God fellowship in the New Testament is the deep enjoyment of all things gospel whether easy or difficult 
So Paul's use of the word here reminds us that the Spirit of God has conjoined his work and his presence to our gospel lives for the whole of our existence as Christians. From being drawn of him to conversion, to the baptizing of the Spirit into Christ, to the renewing of the Spirit, taking us from spiritual death to spiritual life, the moment we're born again. This is all the the fellowship of the Spirit. We've enjoyed the fullness of spiritual relationship with the Godhead because of the fellowship of the Spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit, all that he is and all that he's done in your past and continues to do in your presence and will do in your futures, the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all, remain with you all. And then he goes on to say, in reality, that this is the enduring aspect of our Christian lives since salvation. He finishes with a fourth since, since there's any affection and compassion. Remember back to the affection and the compassion that was yours on Christ's behalf the moment you were born again. And I would say this is, this is probably the purely emotive aspect that when we're saved, that we, we certainly feel affection and we feel compassion and love. Paul's final statement that describes the reality of their own conversion past is a reminder that God's affection and compassion in Christ that was theirs the moment of their salvation is still a divine reality that they enjoy today. It's also a reality that they now convey to others within the church and in Christ outside the church. And since these four conversion realities remain true for each saved person in the church, therefore we can orient our minds and hearts in a proper direction. And that's verse 2, where we find the main point here, or the main verb. Our togetherness in Christ remains a continuing reality because of what he's done for us in our salvation past. The togetherness that's going to be called for here is really aligned with the purpose of chapter 1 and verse 27. Look with me there. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So when Paul says here in verse 3 of chapter 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, kind of similar language to verse 27 and 28, isn't it, of chapter 1. Be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. We understand what it means to, in part, walk worthy of the gospel or striving together for the faith of the gospel. So what would bring great joy to Paul? Remaining intent on this purpose for living. How do we do so? By being of the same mind. Squarely defined in our purpose. What is this mind set? So Pastor Tim, sometimes people say, you spend a lot of time on this in your preaching because you have the gift of evangelism. Folks, that may be true, right? But we're only going to spend time on something in a text if the text demands we spend time on it. Paul is very clearly saying here that the the, the purpose of our existence is a gospel purpose. Every one of you, not just the trained professionals that happen to be called pastors, if you've been saved or since you've been saved in Christ, Christ has saved you unto this one unique single-minded purpose. There's a lot of things that any church does, a lot of activities, but all of the activities that are done in the church are to underpin its singular obedience to the command of Christ himself. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples. 
It's wonderful to have a clean and orderly kitchen. That's great. It's wonderful to have great landscaping. It's wonderful to have clean classrooms to teach in. It's great to have air conditioning on an 80-degree humid Sunday morning. It's great to have all of these wonderful programs that run so smoothly. It's great to have all these things that we enjoy, but why? Paul says his joy, our joy is fulfilled. It's matured. It's settled. It's sure. If we are of the same mind, and this mind is is living together in our thinking, submitting our wills to this purpose of gospel intention. It goes on to say maintaining the same love. The sacrificing love of Christ lived in gospel effort yields a friendship love among those who serve with purpose. There's a brotherhood, a camaraderie, a togetherness among God's people who serve in gospel purpose. It was wonderful to catch a glimpse of that live this week a number of times. Where many came together locked arm in arm not standing out as individuals but standing out as a team living the sacrificial love of Christ before so many maintaining the same mind maintaining the same love united in spirit Paul's speaking here of a a present convictional reality to our unity of purpose. Each soul looks deeply inside oneself to ask a very personal question. Is my existence united in experience with the purpose of Christ and his church? We've already been united in Christ by the Spirit. This is talking about, this is, cap, this is not capital S, this is little s, united in your spirit. There's a decision each of us has to make. And this is my local church, right? This isn't like going to lunch or going to recess or going to work. This isn't like, going for a jog or going to the gym. This isn't like going on a round of golf. This isn't enjoying all those good things. This is, this is your spirit within the context, identifying with the single-minded purpose and deciding to do so through this church that we have a collect individual and collective gospel responsibility and we are to be united in it. Again, he says, intent on one purpose. Its pursuits remain the collective goals of everyone born again in the room. Gospel purpose is the why of our worship. It's the why of our living practice. I thought this year's curriculum in Grace Bible Day Camp was was wonderful. It's a kingdom comparison, right? The Bible talks about the kingdom of darkness. That's the realm in which Satan rules. And talks about the kingdom of God's great light. The kingdom of darkness, this world's old system is loud and distracting and all-consuming for unto all things temporal, whether good or bad. It's a distraction unto all things temporal, whether good or bad. But the kingdom of God in Christ is one of eternal purpose as we glorify God and that's the purpose of Christ in our world. Like if we have no gospel to take to the world, why are we even here this morning? We're certainly here to worship God, but the only reason for the church still here on terra firma, this old earth, 
is because there's a mission to fulfill. If that mission was complete, then I'm sure we would be out of here. So there's some things we need to to recollect. There's something we need to orient ourselves continually to, this single-mindedness in this way. But this unity of purpose continues with some obligation that's, that's easy to maintain. What is our gospel obligation in verses three and four as we finish this morning? Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. That's pretty clear. In this unified effort, the only thing that sticks out is our gospel prerogative. Jesus must increase and we must what? Decrease. See him. Remember, you're already hidden in him. Right? Hidden in Christ and God. You're already hiding behind him. So the, 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 why, why in the world... Why in the world would we not want him to be seen? Why would we want to sneak out from behind him and say, here I am, listen to me, I got it right. I got it right, hear me, hear me. If you're not going to hear me, then there's something wrong with you. Hear me, hear me, no, hear me. You didn't hear me, right? Because you're not hearing me, you're headed in the wrong direction. Hear me, no, see Christ, hear Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition, self-promotion, and empty conceit. I love the qualification of the word conceit there. This is the world's hallmark for their own existence. Selfish ambition and empty conceit, living for everything temporal, for themselves, whether good or whether bad. But he says, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Literally, one translator said this, count others more significant than you. Reckon those around you as more significant than yourself. Therefore, what they're doing is probably a better way than you would do it. Well, what if it's not? It doesn't matter at that point because both the unified goal, your orientation is what? Let's spread the gospel together. I can walk into the kitchen. We're gonna, not going to pick on snack people for Grace Bible Day Camp. Let's call it a potluck. Let's call it a prayer breakfast. Let's call it a women's prayer brunch. The kitchen's used all the time. We like food, like a lot, Right? I've got a delicious taco salad waiting for me at home. And, and I'm not even going to tell you what I put on it. It's, it's, I'm hungry, didn't have much breakfast, I'm ready to go. So let's, close, let's wrap this up. So, <laughs> so I go to the kitchen, right? There's, there's three or four or five different... I grew up in a pastor's home, trust me. There's always a lady out there that thinks she can do the kitchen better than the next lady. Right? Just like there's a man out there that can always arrange the shed better than the next guy. Just like there's a mechanic in the room who could always fix the church tractor better than the other guy. Just like there's a painter in the room who's probably going to be able to cut a ceiling and not get paint on the ceiling better than the next guy. There's always going to be someone better at something than you. But when I walk into that shed, when I pick up that paintbrush, when I walk into that kitchen, whatever the venue... There's going to be 31 different ways that can get done and get done well. I'm going to walk into that room and I'm going to think everyone in the room does the job better than I can. Period. And as soon as I start to think that I can do it better than anyone in the room, gospel purpose goes into the back seat at best. Probably the trunk. Probably getting pulled like a wet cocker spaniel by its collar on the back of the car, on the bumper. As soon as anyone walks into a room, right? 
and believes they can do anything better than anyone else. And if they're not listened to in that moment, gospel purpose, unified gospel intention and orientation begins to be dismantled. Because everything that we're agreeing or disagreeing about, whether something should be cooked or painted or mowed or swept or whatever, all of that is of temporary value. All of it. It's all going to burn up in some pretty intense heat in time to come. So with this orientation, we, we enter into the maintenance of this obligation. We count others more significant than ourselves. How often? All the time. All the time. We parents have these conversations all the time regarding our kids, right? Right? Whether they're setting up their rooms at home or they're setting up their rooms at college, right? The way they take care of their car or don't take care of their car, right? Two parents can approach any one of those situations as they're helping their kids load a car or load a room or clean a room or whatever. And those parents inevitably, and you know you're this, right? So, Either that or I'm just going to tell on ourselves, right? We go into a room and it's like, this can be done and this can be done. I'll guarantee you every way my wife wants to do it, it's a better way than I do it. But my stubborn, <laughs> my stubborn will always, not always, at times believes, yeah, not so much. Every single time she ends up being right. Every single time. Right? But why do I still, Right? Why do I still say, you know what? Eh, not so much, sweetheart. This is the way to go. And the end of the day, she can come back. She has at times. Graciously says, you know, sweetheart, I know you mentioned to do it this way, and I said it'd probably be done better this way, and, and you bowed out, and I just want to let you know I think it would have been done better your way, so let's go back and redo it. But in that moment, to back out of that situation is not hard. Because even in that marital moment, there's something of eternal purpose if wills have their way that gets dismantled a little bit. We get caught up in something that's merely temporary and it's just the placement of a stupid kind of spoon in one particular drawer in the kitchen as compared to another drawer in the kitchen. It's just a spoon in a drawer. Why am I so silly like that? I have no idea. I'm preaching myself this later on today when we continue to clean out rooms for kids to come home this week. Listen to your wife. Listen to Rhonda. Listen to her. Literally reckon others more significant than yourself. In other words, we don't act as if we have something to bring to the table. We serve and allow the spiritual gift of God to be seen in humility in us and that gift is requested to be present at the table to help. We don't bring ourselves in that moment. With humility, we bring the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God as we're gifted of the Spirit of God and if we can serve, we'll humbly do so because the bigger part of our why needs to be kept in view. A.T. Robertson was a tremendous Greek scholar. He wrote a 1,400-page work in a Greek language called Grammar of the Greek New Testament. Any serious student of the Word of God probably has this, these volumes in his office. I inherited mine from my dad, right, who was given those, I believe, by Kenneth Weiss, a great Greek scholar, an old Moody. So I have those in my library. He's described as a towering genius and master scholar of his day. He was the son-in-law of John Broadus, who's written the most famous commentary in the book of Matthew, who was a seminary professor at Southern Seminary. If you're going to do a study on the book of Matthew, you're going to grab his commentary first and foremost, most likely. Both men accomplished great gospel things in the training of others for ministry. If you visit the gravesite of John Broadus, 
not far from Southern Seminary, you'll see his family purchase quite a large monument in his memory. Then if you look directly down to a flat, ground-level grave marker, you'll see where A.T. Robertson is buried. R. Kent Hughes recounts this story as he was taken to this grave by the president of Southern Seminary. And the president of Southern Seminary said to R. Kent Hughes in that moment, it was A.T. Robertson's desire to be buried in the shadow of John Broadus. Folks, that's just a simple illustration of what should be a perpetual mindset of every gospel partner in this place. And we saw that this week, and that's why things went well. That's why any individual or collective outreach we have for Christ throughout Grace Church of Mentor and outside of Grace Church of Mentor only goes well because this is the mindset. This is the gospel obligation. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Let them thrive. Let them go. Let them do all that their heart desires certainly in a biblical manner. Don't be the distraction in the room unto eternal and gospel purpose among us. So as we go to prayer, could I ask you to recollect often these four glorious realities that were ours the moment we're born again of, verses, of verse one. Could I ask you to continue to maintenance and orient your heart under this single-minded purpose in the way that's outlined here in this passage. And going forward, going forward, could I ask you, as I've asked of myself, to draw the circle around your own heart and your own life and obligate yourselves by God's grace to live this way among each other, should I say continue to live this way among one another. because there's a much higher, greater, eternal purpose for our existence as a church. Okay? Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We, we thank you for a brief glimpse into this passage and a reminder that we have in all of the prison epistles, the prison letters that Paul wrote, that we need to have wonderful maintenance of relationships within so that we can live our why without and I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful way that that was demonstrated among us by so many this past week. May we go forward as a body continuing to allow Christ to increase while we decrease. And Lord, in 2023, continue to grant us a harvest of souls that have come to know Jesus greater than any year of our existence. Prepare us, Lord, to shepherd those souls. In Christ's name we pray.